Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. It's our December edition. Who would have thunk we were here in December talking about lawn and garden stuff? How are you today, Jerry? Hey, I'm doing really well. And you know what? We can garden most any time of the year, uh, whether it's indoor garden or just thinking about next year's garden. Exactly. Planning ahead. So our guest today is Amy Seiler. Welcome, Amy. Glad to have you here. Hello, everybody. I'm so happy to be here today. And our co-host today, Tom John McCurry, is also joining us. So uh, you may hear hear from him. Good morning, Tom John. How are you? Doing well today. So we will uh, take a few minutes and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be back right after this. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, Presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at wyoextension.org. Good morning again, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program, along with Tom John McCreary and our guest today, Amy Seiler. So knowing that, I think we are going to spend some time talking about trees and tree issues and, you know, all the good stuff we spend talking about uh, when Amy is our guest. And we appreciate having you here today, Amy. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I'm I'm always enjoy this. This is a highlight. Um of the day for me, for sure. So, um, oh gosh, what kind of tree things shall we talk about? Um, I've been kind of walking around. I'm, I'm doing a lot of walking right now just because the weather is so beautiful. And so I'm was really starting to see some of these tree issues that are already showing up because of the very odd weather that we've had in September and October. And I thought maybe we could touch on that a little bit. That would be fantastic. What, so when you're walking around, give us an idea what trees you're seeing and maybe some of the weird stuff that is showing up. So when I'm walking around, obviously the conifers are really catching my attention, obviously, because that's what has foliage or needles on it right now. And it's it's so interesting to see when it heats up again, you can see the damage that was done because of the freeze maybe because of the September freeze, but most likely to that October freeze that got oh so cold. The trees were damaged, and so they're not able to pull up that water, so the needles are starting to brown already. And you'll see, particularly the top portions of the tree, are what are really starting to brown, and you'll see some needle mortality. I still see nice big white buds, so I'm I'm feeling pretty good about growth for next year, but I think these trees, as the season goes on and we have these hot and cold spells, we're going to start to see more of that browning on the trees, indicating to us what trees and where they froze from those weather events. So is it a terminal issue, do you think, or is it something like just the top might be dead? Will they grow out of it? Will they recover? Are they going to look like 
crap for five or six years? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it depends on where the trees were in their process of transitioning to um, more dormancy. Now, evergreens, they, they can transpire all, all season long because they keep their needles. The great thing is they're able to pull up water as well because they can transpire. But what happened was they still have a switch over of chemicals so that water doesn't freeze in the needle. And it, that freeze in October happened so early that that process had not really gotten to take place. And so significant damage to, for the ability of the trees to pull up the moisture. And so what I'm, what I'm thinking is there's probably existing needle damage and mortality, but again, I'm seeing big swollen white buds on the, on the terminal growth. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we'll just have some needle drop, but we'll still have growth. But on some trees that may not even be the case, the tops may die out of them. You might have to try and reestablish a new leader, I don't know exactly what will happen because that was so early in the season and it was such a low temperature. I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's a real bummer. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer, isn't it? And, and that's yeah. the, I'm, so I'm starting to see the damage on the conifers. Now the deciduous trees, I walk around and I see a lot that, that never dropped their leaves. They're, they're leave, they never had that, opportunity to abscise, which is kind of shut off the connection between the leaf and the twig. And so they, they never got to go through that process. So that's why all those leaves are still kind of hanging on. And so we'll see some of the new growth I've bent back and it's brittle. And so that is frozen and, and dead. So maybe further back in the tree, it seems that some of the trees are a little more flexible. Hopefully we'll just have some tip dieback. But I would say some of the trees that we have planted that were maybe kind of on the bubble of hardiness, we maybe have lost some of those, unfortunately. Another yeah. bummer. You, you're yeah. just you're just bringing us all sorts of good news today, aren't you? Yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> I've noticed it as well that I've, the lindens never drop their leaves and their other uh, green ash some of those just have not i don't know what will happen with them the apical meristem i've noticed that on conifers mm -hmm. as, and that's a bummer for sure so what i like to do is because i it doesn't seem like it today but i don't like to give up hope so on those conifers i i go and i check those buds and if those buds aren't brittle and that color is like a nice creamy white color on the tips, um, particularly with the pines, I and they're flexible, I feel like the tree will probably push through. It'll probably drop last year's needles because they froze, but I, if there's still a good viable bud, that's encouraging. Now, what that does mean though, is that that tree is going to have less foliage to photosynthesize and that will be a major stressor on the tree. Um, and so we'll want to make sure that we give those trees adequate water, make sure that they're, they're mulched well, and, you know, just kind of be watching out for some pest issues because that's, those show up when trees are stressed. So, so Amy, what do you, what do you recommend with, with you, you mentioned the watering on a nice day like this, do you just put a garden hose out and just let it start running? I, I, you, you know what? 
I think there's several different things that you can do. You could certainly take a, um, a sprinkler and I always call it like an owl eye sprinkler. I don't know what it's called, but it has two little holes and it has, this has a nice flow and you can cover a lot of the drip system. Um, just move the hose like three or four times and you can get a lot of watering accomplished. And I would probably set it and let it run for 30 minutes in each area because it has been so ridiculously dry that we've got to get some moisture in the soil because what we really want to happen when, whenever it starts to get cold and stay cold, we want that ground to freeze and we want plenty of moisture in the soil so that it can freeze and stay frozen. If it's, if it's really dry, that freeze and thaw, it, it just so quickly happens and dries out. If it stays frozen, if there's plenty of water in there, it'll stay frozen longer and that's much better for the tree. I know that it's so dry. We let a we babysat a couple of dogs over the weekend and let them out in the backyard and they'd run around and chase each other and there's just drifts of dirt, dust sure. coming up. They would leave a trail of dust. <laughs> so it it is really 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 dry. Oh, it's 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 miserably dry. We went hiking out at Buffalo Creek which is kind of east of the Wildcat Hills and Gearing and I was, I mean, it is a dust bowl out there. Um, And they actually had done a controlled burn out there. And it's, you know, a lot of times you'll do a controlled burn and then things will kind of green up a little bit. It's, it's just, it just is looking pretty rough. So it's not not looking good. (laughs) It's not pretty right now. (laughs) You know, uh, we've had a string of, of uh, nice weather in between the weird weather events, which has allowed us to get out and do some yard work and, Diane and I have been picking up uh, leaves in our yard, and the 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 piece of equipment that I have, uh, Diane and I refer to it as the snuffleupagus. But um, we it hooks up to our lawnmower, and it, it uh, so the lawnmower picks things up and mulches them, and then this thing sucks it into a big bale in the back, and it, it basically has atomized the dirt and the little pieces so it's not really collecting in the back it's kind of all blowing around it, it is a oh. dirt nasty job to do <laughs> but i'm done i finished yesterday <laughs> so you're vacuuming your yard <laughs> pretty much yeah <laughs> but uh i get you know we've we've talked to i get to put all of that good stuff that i collect that doesn't mm-hmm. blow away into a really nice mulch pile and i get the last mowing off of my yard and prepare everything for the snow that we are going to get whenever that is. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, it cleans everything up really nice. It just takes seven years for my mulch to turn into compost. Because <laughs> it's so dry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in that sandy ground where you live, I was the egg guy out there for, right. It's, it's gotta be tremendous. The amount of, because the uh, sand is so fine that you get a ton of problems with that. Well, our, our soil is 92% sand. So um, if I'm using a vacuum, I'm sucking up dirt too. Right, exactly. <laughs> so Amy, tis the season. Let's shift gears and try to have a little lighter attitude about things. Um, for those of us who have uh, uh, chosen to use a live Christmas tree this year, which Diane and I did, and we figured out that it's been about 14 years since we've actually had a live Christmas tree. I'm amazed at how much water it's taking up. I'm I'm putting in a half a gallon every day in this tree. And the type of tree that we found, it's called a Nordman fir. Mm. Uh, a Nordman fir? 
Nordman fir. Yeah, I was unfamiliar with it. Uh, the leaves are flat. And um, if you look at it, it, to me, it looks like rosemary. They're kind of greenish, silvery color. It, it doesn't look scraggly like rosemary. It looks, it's a really decent looking tree, but it, it's very different. Had never seen anything like that before. And boy, is it thirsty. <laughs> are the needles, are the needles soft? Yes. Soft. Yes. Uh -huh. I like that. They're flat. Yep. Well, and that's, that's the great thing about a fir Christmas tree is that typically the needles will always be soft. And if you get them fresh, obviously, Jeff, yours was very fresh. When they continue to take up water like that, it means that, that, that those little chambers have not been completely destroyed, that pull-up water. And so that, that's a good thing because it's safer in your house and you can in, enjoy that much longer. We've got Christmas trees where we've put them in the water and they've hardly taken up a drop and you know you're taking it down the day after christmas because you're like please don't let my house catch on fire but um you know our tree this year i think they the christmas tree cutters and the shippers they did a great job our tree too we got a um fraser fir and it has taken up an insane amount of water and i love it and our house still smells really good like a like a christmas tree um we're kind of Christmas tree nerds at our house. We get two live trees and then we have one artificial tree. So we we get um, the Fraser fir and then we get a little Charlie Brown tree, a Douglas fir. And okay. I really like those trees. I, you know, when we're talking about tree varieties, um, there is a really good, um, a couple good websites that people can go to if they're just trying to figure out what kind of um, tree they might want to look into because some people might be really focused on fragrance, like Grand Fir will provide great fragrance. You crush that needle and it's just this kind of citrusy, wonderful um, fragrance. And it really does make your house smell very good. There are others that people, you know, they want the needles to stay on and stay fresh for long periods of time. So I, I jotted down a couple sites that people might want to check out. So the first one is, this sounds funny, pickyourownchristmastree.org. And it has this wonderful chart about the different types of Christmas trees. And it has all these different qualities like needle holding without water, firmness of branches. Because a lot of us, you know, we buy Christmas trees so that they can hold all of our really cool ornaments. And if you have a real flimsy one, you're going to be disappointed and frustrated and things will always be falling on the floor and breaking. You can pick it. They rate them for fragrance, needle softness, and of course, cost. And so that's kind of a organization that just puts this information out. So that would be a, a good one to go to. The other one that I would encourage people to go to just to learn a little bit more about maybe maintaining their trees and just a little bit more about the industry in general is the American Christmas Tree Association. That's a nonprofit group. And I love their mission. It's to help families create memories and build traditions choosing the perfect Christmas tree. Oh, and nice. I think that's great. I was talking to Jerry about this yesterday. What are what are some of our, our greatest Christmas memories? And, and Jerry and I were both talking about how we would go out and pick our live Christmas tree when we were young. And I, I think that's such a a cool memory. And, and it's true that we want to be looking for ways to build these memories and traditions. And I think a live Christmas tree is part of that Christmas tradition. So yeah. 20 years ago, we used to go out to our Christmas tree farm over here and we'd pick out our Christmas tree. We noticed that on a different seasons, we'd have a lot of allergies and the, the, our, our noses would stuff up as we brought the tree in. 
So I got the bright idea to take that tree, take it to the car wash and wash the crap out of it. And it would just, <laughs> the water would roll out just mucky brown. There is a lot it. of dirt on a Christmas tree. So if you might have some allergy people in your house, you might consider it. You just leave it in the garage and let it drip dry. And and I think it added more moisture to the tree. And um, but how many, people how would, many needles did you wash off of it? Not very many. <laughs> Honest to God, not very many. Well, you didn't hose it really hard, but you you know, car wash has a little little force behind it. You, you didn't people, use the high pressure portion of the washer, did you? <laughs> no. But I did use the soap. I washed it off. I <laughs> rinsed it off. I put a little wax on it. But Perfect. people would go, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm washing my Christmas tree. Uh, why would you do that? <laughs> so That Urshabek guy, he's just a little nutty. That Urshabek <laughs> guy. So it, it, it is. It's like some of those traditions that, you know, and we talk about it 25 years later. Jerry, uh, the other thing is uh, the Christmas trees get a white fungus on them. And my family is all of, all of them except me is allergic to that fungus. And uh, that would be a great idea to wash your tree before you take it in the house. You can see it on the follicles, usually at the base. And it, it, that, that's a super good idea to wash it. Wash a little soap and water doesn't hurt anything. No, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what kind of people I'm talking to today. Somebody vacuums their yard and another one washes their Christmas tree. I, I don't belong to this group. <laughs> I just, I just well, didn't. Didn't you say? Didn't you say, Amy? You always left a, a a mitten at the Christmas tree farm. Oh my gosh! So my mother, you know, she wanted the absolute perfect Christmas tree, and we too um, went and purchased our Christmas trees at the Torrington Christmas Tree Farm. And my mom would we'd all have little hats and gloves and on, and my mom would find a tree that she'd really like, but it wasn't sure if it was the perfect one. So she'd say, "Okay, leave your scarf here." And then we'd have to leave our hat here and we'd leave a glove there. And when we left the Christmas tree farm, we had, we were missing many things because you could never go back and remember where, where the hat or glove was. So um, great, great memories. I, I also, you know, as a kid, you hate every minute of it, but as an adult, you're like, okay, that was really cool. But I remember getting sandburrs and stickers in my socks and my shoes. And as awful as that sounds, I, I would go back and do it again and again now in this part of this phase of my life. So we take our kids to the Kiwanis Christmas tree lot. And it's like, I've asked them to pull out their toenails because they're like, we had to go buy a Christmas tree. They'll remember it and love it someday. Yeah. Yes. Again, do we have to do this again? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we just do this last year? Oh man, it's incredible. But I, they're going to thank me for it and they will make their kids go out and do that. I'm, I'm certain of it someday. Yeah, I was probably one of those kids that didn't appreciate the things that my parents made me do, but uh, I do appreciate them now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great, great family go, memories. Amy, we used to go up in the medicine boat range, and uh, you could buy a permit for five bucks or something and get these little scraggly trees. I mean, Charlie Brown trees. I mean, the wind had been blowing, you know, one side. Well, you're only going to see one side anyway, but. We, well, those fit perfectly in a corner, Tom, John. You just shove it right up into a corner. It's perfect tree. I, I love that. And, you know, I my husband, they grew up in Colorado, and that's what exactly what they would do. They'd hike out into the forest, and 
um, go get their Christmas tree. Matter of fact, my brother and sister-in-law went up to the Pine Ridge. You can get a permit and cut a tree up in the Pine Ridge. And that's what they did last weekend. And I'm, it was a great family adventure for them. So I think that, you know, that again goes back to that American Christmas Tree Association's mission is building those family traditions and memories. I, I just absolutely love it. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, Jerry, do you have a live tree? No, uh, again, uh, the allergy portion <laughs> yep. of it. Uh, we decided to have a, a, and it's a small, small tree, but still the cats can play with it and the cats can pull it over. And uh, <laughs> wait, wait a minute, uh, uh, Amy, on that rating scale, is there a cat safe tree? <laughs> cat, <yeah. laughs> no, I'm very disappointed they haven't thought of that. But Jerry, you need to write that organization and get that up there. I think so. I, and I think, you know, you probably ha- we'll probably have to start putting up guy wires. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I got to tell you, um, we didn't it's been so long since we've had a Christmas tree that uh, I built my own base for it. I don't think a cat can pull mine over. <laughs> <laughs> Once they get up to the top and start swaying, things tip over pretty fair. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, it would but stay up. Yeah, we'll bring our cats over and we'll put yours to the test. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tom, do you have a live tree this year? Oh, no. We haven't had one for many years just because the allergies. Sure. That's how I discovered the white fungus. I don't know what it's called, Amy, but it, it's just, you get a tree with that on it, and I'm sure it's not a good thing for your allergy, uh, your allergies, so... I'm not sure what it would be either. Uh, those are, you know, there's so much moisture where those trees are coming from Michigan or Oregon. It, you know, they're bound to have some issues. I'm not, I'm not sure. It might even be kind of a symbiotic relationship with the yeah. tree and the fungus. I'm not sure, but I, I fully understand for, for those that do suffer from allergies, having a live Christmas tree would be miserable. Well, and I was a fireman for 10 years and every year people wouldn't keep their Christmas trees wet and we'd have Christmas tree fires and they burn when they're dry. Like, Oh, they ignite. It's, it's kind of like burning the tumbleweed. Right. It is. (laughs) You know, I think that, I think you've just led to a really good point. And, and we used to have incandescent bulbs on our tree that would get really warm and always made me really nervous. And we've switched to an led light and it's taken a while for us to find one that we've thought would be bright enough and um but i i love that led because it stays cool and it um i think it reduces the risk significantly um i'm you know i'm not in the fire protection um industry so maybe there are instances where leds have ignited a tree but i i feel much better about my led lights on my tree than those incandescent bulbs and you should Well, if those cats get in there and chew on the wires, you're in trouble. (laughs) Now, even with an artificial tree, we're we're talking about allergies. So the dust that accumulates on a Christmas tree, it depends on how you put it up. And if you're the kind of guy that wires his ornaments on, well, Mm -hmm. the soap and water might have to be a little more, be a little less, but... You can even soap and water uh, an artificial tree and make it a little cleaner, get the dust off of it. But then, you know, uh, uh, some sort of a, a like a game bag. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're if you buy a, a wild game bag, you can kind of keep your tree a lot cleaner. And for those that do wire their ornaments onto the tree, all they have to do is take the bag down and plug it in, and there you have a tree. 
You know, I'm thinking a uh, fertilizer super sack could work really well. Sure. I, sure. I think uh, you could cut the top out of that or the bottom and uh, just drape it over the top. And you got a large enough sack to take care of that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and have an instant tree. All you just do is put a skirt around the bottom and there you are. Just drop the super sack to the bottom and there's the skirt. Oh, and that's the skirt. Sure. Hey, uh, I think it's time to take a break and listen to our sponsors and we'll be back in a moment. All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. We've been talking with Amy Seiler about trees and Christmas and good stuff and bad stuff (laughs) (laughs) about this time of year. Um, But I wanted to turn the floor over to uh, our co-host today, uh, Tom John McCreary. He had some things that he wanted to talk about. So, uh, Tom John, let's turn the floor over to you. Well, the first thing I'd like to mention... Jeff, is that uh, I got my Ag News uh, magazine from the University of Wyoming. And yes, sir. You had an article in there that was wonderful about storing and disposing of chemicals and many other subjects. So if you get a chance, uh, check that out. And it's always good to see a, f- a friend in the University of Wyoming Ag News. The other thing I have is I've got the Home Gardener's Problem Solver, and it is the best reference material I've seen. It gives you uh, problems of plants, trees as well, Amy, analysis and solutions for all kinds of plant diseases and problems with your with your trees and garden. And, Does it talk uh, about a white I fungus was, on Christmas trees? I was looking and I couldn't find one. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it has all kinds of like leafy scale shale on aspens and other as well. So, and, Tom, Tom John, where did you where did you find that book? Well, Janan got them for me. My wife, Janan, got them for me at the library. There's another one called <laughs> House Plants, and I learned a lot about overwatering and and being real careful with your house plants. So, it's, okay, it's, so so if you got it from the library, you have to give it back, right? No, no, we bought them. They oh. had a book sale. <laughs> so, anybody that would like to borrow that, get a hold of me. I'd be glad to share. Okay. So, uh, what, and, what year was it published? Oh, golly. I, let me go ahead and talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> here, uh, here, here's a, a curveball. Deal with that. <laughs> hey, so I'm going to add on to um, just a little bit about that book and some of the, the treatments. And, you know, when you're identifying things that are going on with your trees and shrubs and plants in your landscape. And, and there's always a, not always, but, you know, there's chemicals that will treat the insect or the pest. But I think one of the things that we need to make sure that we are always very aware of is a lot of those disease and insects are a result of trees or plants being under stress. And so I think the really important thing that we all need to take take away from this is you need to have good cultural practices and that will reduce the pressure generally, not all the time, but of those insects and diseases. And what that means is for a tree, making sure that it's watered adequately, not too much, not too little, making sure that the soil is not compacted around it, making sure that you're mulching um, a, a nice big mulch circle around your tree so that there's minimal competition between the turf and the tree, making sure that um, you're planting the right tree or shrub in the right place um, 
that it wants to grow because of soil conditions, soil pH, those types of things. Those are the things that we really need to focus on in the beginning. And then the the book that is referenced, those are really handy for identifying the pests. But I think the key is to, just like in our own bodies, make sure that we're healthy first. um, And then it's never a bad thing to have a a prescription, an antibiotic or whatever to help us make us feel or get us better. But being healthy in the first place is going to be a lot more impactful. So just wanted to throw that in there. Amy, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, when we're talking about things in our garden and uh, uh, growing crops to eat, if they're healthy, they're less likely to have pest problems. And so it's the same thing with trees and shrubs, right? Uh, And we have to watch out and take care of those things. And to list a few stressors, water is probably number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wind contributes to lack of water. Uh, And then if we continue down the scale, deer... (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, they are a pest (laughs) yeah hail is also a stressor right um we had honey locusts in our front yard that got hailed probably 12 years ago now i've had to remove two of them and i'm feeling really bad because the third one i think is probably not going to make it into next year so uh i've been uh cutting them out and replacing them with other trees but moles voles Gophers, all those types of things can cause stress and harm to tree bases and bark and roots. And so uh, just if you get the opportunity, um, you know, one of the perpetual things on my list in my yard is uh, gopher patrol. So uh, (laughs) if if the weather's nice, walk outside, look around. If something doesn't quite look right, if you've got uh, voles in and around your leaf litter, under around your plants, chewing up your yard, try to take care of those things. I mentioned that because in my leaf cleaning operation, I found an area where the voles were living underneath the leaves and making a mess. So, you know, it's just one of those things that you kind of got to be out, be observant and then take care of it and, uh, or try to mediate it before it gets really bad. Well, and, and I appreciate you just, you know, touching on that voles and, um, gophers and moles, um, you know, and, and with all pests, our plants can handle a little bit of pressure. They're adapted to handle a little bit and they can respond and recover. It's like, like, like what you said, you have to make sure that you don't get to this threshold where the, the plants can't handle it. And so that's why being engaged in your landscape 12 months out of the year is really important. We can't just be kind of keen in and spending time out there and maintaining it from April through September. It's a year round process if we want to be successful at it. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the best advices you've given me, Amy, was to water my ash trees because we had the emerald ash borer coming closer and closer to all of us. And I said, you know, how do we protect our trees from it? And you said, Well, how often are you watering it? I said, um, uh, yeah. When it rains, <laughs> when it rains and my gosh, it hasn't rained. So we've been putting those trees on a watering schedule and gosh, they look really good. So the better the health of the parent host and all those R's hosts for those critters to jump in on, the healthier it is, the harder it is for them to gain a foothold. Okay. So yes, Jerry, that is very true on the majority of pests. Um, When you have an invasive pest like emerald ash borer, that tree could be the healthiest, best maintained tree. And unfortunately, 
that tree is not adapted. It doesn't have any processes in it within it to kind of ward off that pest. And so I, I don't I hope I didn't mislead you a while back, but even your best intentions probably are not going to help your ash trees evade the emerald ash borer. Now, the natural ash borers that exist in our landscapes, your practices that you're doing most certainly will reduce their effect on the trees. But with emerald ash borer, unfortunately, there is really nothing besides a chemical treatment, unfortunately, that will be able to um, ward off that that pest doing mortal damage to your so um, Jerry, mortal, but but um, what word am I looking for? Definite death, imminent death to your imminent tree. Imminent death. Yeah. So Jerry, make them look good until the emerald ash borer gets here. My wife was after me to get rid of some of the my clothing that I that I've had that doesn't fit anymore, especially my my slacks. And they're really nice. And she says, why are you keeping those? I said, because if I ever get sick and lose a lot of weight, I'll be a good looking sick person. (laughs) (laughs) And my pants will fit again. And the pants will fit way again. So, Amy, should I start buying some of this chemical because I have the ash tree or wait until I see some damage? Is there a a prophylactic treatment? Okay, no. So what the the products that are used to treat emerald ash borer are are pretty intense products. And we would prefer that those not be utilized in the landscape until absolutely necessary. And I'm sure that Wyoming has a similar recommendation, but the Nebraska Forest Service recommends no treatment to trees for emerald ash borer until it has been discovered within 15 miles of your location. And and that is for, it's a waste of money to be proactively treating those because we don't know, you could be treating for 15 years and that insect may, may not even be close by. And it's fairly expensive sure. to treat as well. Plus it's just, again, it, it, it is a chemical that is not incredibly selective to just kill emerald ash borer. It kills, um, it's a midocloprid. It can affect honeybees, a lot of really beneficial insects. And so we really don't want to use it until we absolutely have to. I, you know, we use that product in other ways in our landscape. We just don't want so much of it out there. Yeah, good, good, uh, good information. So Jerry, plan, you know what plan B is, don't you? Plant now something else. N- not an ash tree. <laughs> not an ash tree. Yeah, plant something else right now so that if if you have a mature ash in your landscape, I think what everybody needs to do is go out and consider it not being there anymore and figure out what you would plant in its place now prior to its imminent death, as Amy said. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be so negative, everybody, but (laughs) you're such a downer. Bah humbug. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So let me, let me bring up um, a a happier topic. And I love your lead into this, Jeff, that, that how, how perfectly planned was that? I I think you're exactly right. I think we need to plan for the future and expect that that ash tree is probably not going to be there down the road. So I sat in on this great webinar the other day through the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum, and it was their curator's annual meeting. And we had Justin Evertson with the Nebraska Forest Service and the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum talking about different tree species to try. And so I got a new list of trees that I thought maybe we could 
you know, I, I'm not going to say that it's our it's our new tree to plant, but you know, as we're trying to diversify tree species, these might be some things that we might want to try out here. They talked about the Chinese chestnut. Now they are having great success with it growing out in eastern Nebraska. I can grow Fort Mc, like Fort McNair chestnut at my house and in, in our park systems we have some. And so this chestnut might be a smaller like maybe 30 foot tree that you could, you know, try in your landscape. It's got a really cool compound leaf that looks like a palmate, like a, like a hand. It's, it's really cool. It has a nice flower on it. It's resistant to chestnut blight because it's from China. And so that disease does not affect it. They talked again about trying ginkgos. And so I think we've talked about ginkgo before, but, you know, I don't think that we need to go out and plant, you know, 50 ginkgos, but I think we should be trying that a little bit more. We have a couple ginkgos in our park system. Some are, I think they're, they're not thriving, but it's because they're not mulch. They, they get odd amounts of water. And so I think in the home landscape, that might be a good one. Um, Somewhat neglected. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, it's not loved. And it's still um, alive after like 30 years. So, you know, it's one of those that just treat it like garbage and it's still going to be there for you. Um, Because ginkgos, I don't think have any natural uh, or current pests, right? Diseases, insects, nothing. And why is that, Jeff? Do you know? I have no idea. Um, uh, So. it's uh, the only tree in that genus. Oh, that's so, why. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the uh, event of the apocalypse, only cockroaches and ginkgo trees will be left behind. <laughs> that may be the case because they have been here for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So, yes, yes. They, don't, they don't taste good to insects. Do the, uh, do the uh, chestnut trees that you mentioned, do they produce a nut? Yes, they a- do. Yes, they do. It's a smaller nut, um, from my understanding, but it it would be edible. And I I don't think it's as delicious, obviously, as typical. Is it an English chestnut or that's an English walnut? I I don't remember. But yes, they do produce a nut. It's just not as big as do. Are you referring to the chestnuts roasted by an open fire type thing? Yes, I am. They would be they're not as big as those. But yes. Have you okay. had those? Have you had chestnuts roasted on an open fire? Uh, no, I, I have not. Okay, side note. Um, so this is really cool. We have normally in Morrill, they have a little stroll around Christmas where people kind of stroll up and down Main Street. And a family friend for many years has roasted chestnuts over an open fire and then served them at the stroll. And so last year in Gearing, we had an event at our brand new plaza, which everybody should come out and check out. We roasted chestnuts over an, over an open fire. And then you kind of dip it in some butter and sprinkle a little bit of cinnamon and sugar over the top of it. Oh, that, that's got to be bad for you. <laughs> oh, man. It, um, I, frankly, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think I'd sit around and eat those all day long. It's a unique experience, but I don't think it's something that I would crave as a something to have every week something that you don't go back for seconds on is that what you're saying (laughs) everybody's got to try it once (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) good to know okay so i i rudely interrupted your list what's next okay so um the japanese emperor oak is another one that they have had some success with um 
in eastern Nebraska, I've seen it growing as far west as Gothenburg, Nebraska, which has similar soils to what you would have. It's They're fairly sandy. And I think besides the wind, I think that the the conditions, the temperatures, everything would be fairly similar. It has a really, really big leaf on it. And I, I think one of the reasons maybe we haven't seen it out here is because it's just it's just not in nursery production much, but they're trying to get it out more through the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. So that might be, you know, people can always go online and check out that site. They can order plants. It's a nonprofit group. They just, their goal is just to get a lot of different species out so that they can increase tree diversity. Um, and then the final one, and I've seen this one growing as far west as North Platte, Nebraska, it's bitter nut hickory. Oh. And and that one, um, they have a couple really beautiful bitter nuts in North Platte. I mean, really lovely. And I, I think you just, we just need to try some of these things. I think we've talked about this once before on the program, but we have some pecans that are actually growing out here and producing pecans. And that that's a pretty tough tree. And so those are a few things, Jerry, that you might want to, if you just want to play around a little bit. Those might be some fun trees to get started in your yard. And you don't have to start. You can start little seedlings and so you're not breaking the bank. Didn't so, I hear, didn't I remember one time that you said some sort of uh, Kentucky coffee tree? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So there's just your straight Kentucky coffee tree, which is a beautiful tree, outstanding form. I just, it's so tough. I, I really like that. It does produce a pod. It looks like a small banana. If you don't like the way the pod looks, you can, there's a new variety. It's called Espresso Kentucky Coffee Tree. And that's a male form of it, a male selection, and it does not produce a pod. And Jerry, that would be very cool in your yard. Yeah. As a, re- as a re- possible replacement for your ash tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so would you plant that underneath the, the trees? I mean, because my two ash trees are... Oh, I don't know. They're uh, uh, 12 foot apart, and but their leaves are touching on the top. Would you try to put that into underneath them or just out away so they could get some sunshine? Okay, you've just asked a great question. And honestly, Jerry, it depends on the species of tree that you are wanting to plant. There are some species of trees that absolutely have to be in the open sunlight in order for them to grow and thrive. Um, There are some that would rather grow in the shade or the canopy of other trees until they grow larger. And so you kind of need to know what stage these trees grow in the forest. Um, that's, that's kind of what I've learned. And, and not everybody can go out and do that research. So for example, that chestnut would probably prefer to be growing in the understory of your um, ash trees. That would probably be okay. If you were to try an oak, an oak would be very unsuccessful in the shade of the ash trees. That would want to grow more in open sunlight. They, they just seem to do better in that environment. And so I always like to go back to my little forestry books and it shows um, if these trees are an early, like a pioneer species, I know that they want to grow up in sunlight. If they're a late succession tree in a forest ecosystem, I know that I can kind of shadow plant those amongst other trees and they'll be successful. So um, that's why it's always so good to talk to your local nurseries and get some 
additional information from them because they have a little bit more background in it that they could help you out in that. So we're in regards to Kentucky coffee tree, um, those kind of grow on open savannas. And so that tree probably would not do well in the understory of your ash trees. You would want to probably put that on like the south or the west side of an ash um, and it would probably do much better for you. Hey, thank you so much. Good stuff. Uh, I have a question about fertilization. I use uh, Job tree food spikes, and I got one for fruit trees for my apricots, and then I've got them for conifers. Are they a good product to drill in the ground? Like, and I don't know, and what's a good time frame to fertilize? Okay, you're asking good questions. So, in regards to is that a good product? I, I'm not going to comment on you know specific brands and products, but what I do want to talk about is just fertilizing in general. We typically fertilize our yards with a decent fertilizer that has nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and then some minor elements. That generally is enough nitrogen for your trees. We don't really want to put large amounts of nitrogen for our trees to grow. We Every time we have big flushes of growth that attracts insects, and that's kind of what nitrogen does, it also will prevent your tree sometimes from hardening off uh, at appropriate times, which leads to your next question, when is the good time to be fertilizing? And typically you would want to fertilize um, with a, a something that has nitrogen in it between late April and your cutoff date really is the end of July, maybe that first or second week in August. I, I don't really like to add any nitrogen to woody plants after the end of July, just because I really want them to harden off and prepare for winter. And that nitrogen will create that big flush of growth. And then we seem to have a little bit more twig dieback on, on that. So I would be real cautious about utilizing any fertilizer that has high amounts of nitrogen. And frankly, your yard fertilizer is probably enough nitrogen for your trees. Now, I will say that those minor elements that trees need might be more important than nitrogen. And so I have a linden in my yard that just has really struggled being kind of chlorotic. And what I've learned is that I do an application of iron before my tree leaves out it's a chelated iron. And so I apply that all around the drip zone of the tree. And I just kind of watch to see how those buds are swelling and when things are coming out. And it'll break down in the soil and the tree will be able to take it up fairly quickly. And I, so I do that application late April, maybe early May. And then I know that my linden's going to put on another push of growth um, mid-June. And so I try to get an application of that on maybe like early June. It, it, again, I just kind of watched to see what my tree is doing and it has significantly improved the color in my tree. And, and those are the, we really don't want to push ridiculous amounts of growth. We just want healthy trees because healthy trees are going to grow at their normal growth rate. If you're having a oak tree that's growing three and a half feet, that's abnormal. And, you know, you'll have some issues with it hardening off, maybe weak wooded. And, and that's not what we want. We want sturdy, strong trees. And um, so that nitrogen it makes me a little nervous when you get large amounts of that putting around your trees. The other thing, your best fertilizer in the world, and Jeff just sucked it up with his vacuum, is all that leaf litter. That has 
every bit of um, nutrients in it that the tree wants, and it just wants to recycle it in that drip line. And so if you can tolerate a little bit of leaf litter in your yard, I would, that's your best bet for a, a good fertilizer for your trees. Amy, it's all going back in a couple of years. Well, <laughs> five to ten. Seven. Seven. <laughs> hey, so um, I hate to do this. Amy, we love having you on the radio with us. Um, and our time seems to go incredibly fast when you're here. But thank you for your advice. I think uh, we are going to have to say goodbye. I wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Thank you all for um, listening to us and putting up with us. And uh, we will continue on in 2021. Jerry, we probably need to have a little planning session and talk about dates and times going into the new year. But Amy, again, want to thank you. Uh, Tom, John, thank you for being here as well. You, uh, you always seem to ask the questions we miss. So <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> it, it's great to be with everybody. Thanks always for inviting um, and look forward to 2021. Yes, don't we all? <laughs> all right, we'll see you. Take care, everybody. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. UW Extension wishes everyone a safe and happy holiday season. See you next year.